I read a book years ago. It was written by uh, Daniel Gilbert, I believe was the name, and it was called Stumbling on Happiness. And it was, it was really, it was a kind of a fun book. It was an interesting book, but basically it was a book about happiness and about uh, the pursuit of happiness that uh, so many people find themselves invested in. And there were some some ideas about happiness that were brought about in that book that I thought were interesting. Some of the things that we think will uh, hinder our happiness are actually the things that can provide some of the, the deepest happiness. Uh, and, and a lot of this is, you know, maybe even with frivolous things, but, uh, but some of the things that are kind of counterintuitive that help with our happiness, uh, one of them is obstacles and difficulty. Um, if you want to play a game, and it is super easy, you win it every single time, there's no like complication or obstacle or challenge, it's probably a game you'll get bored of pretty quickly. Uh, it's probably something you won't really enjoy doing if it's just like it takes a few seconds and you're done and you win, and you take a few seconds and you're done and you win. It's like we think, well, winning will make me happy. Well, winning might not really make you happy nearly as much as overcoming a challenge might make you happy. Um, doing something that, that requires some effort is, is kind of central to uh, whatever it is giving you a sense of, of happiness and, and accomplishment. Another thing that is um, interesting that can bring happiness or make things more happy is a lack of opportunity or a lack of options. What I mean is if you have so many options, you will often find yourself, no matter which one you choose, having regrets or second second guessing yourself like constantly thinking ah, what well, I could have found something better the, the best way to uh, you know illustrate this I think is I know I've done this before it's like I have an evening I don't have much planned I'm gonna I'm gonna watch something on Netflix you know I'm gonna watch something I've never watched before and I get on there and I start thinking what do I want to watch and I flip 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 and it's like I spend my evening not making a decision rather than finding something and enjoying it why well because if you find one thing you're always thinking what if I had kept scrolling? I could have found something better, maybe. And it's like, there are, people, there are actually, I believe there are apps that it will select for you. Or Netflix even does this, where it'll try to recommend something for you so that you don't get lost into an endless maze of just trying to find something better than it's the last thing and never arriving at anything. Uh, one thing is if you have an, like, an infinite number of options before you, we often think we want more options, but generally options always lead to doubt in the mind that you could have chosen something better. But having a smaller number of options or having less control over what you pick could actually lead to you enjoying the thing more. Why do I, I say all of that? Um, basically, we sometimes want to enjoy things easily, for us to be in control, to have no conflict, but if we think that that's what's gonna bring us happiness, a lot of times that won't. Um, you can talk about this with frivolous things like Netflix and games and things like that, but also sometimes in the most important things in life, overcoming challenges can make, uh, can make whatever you're doing so much more satisfying and meaningful. Uh, even, even in marriages, you know, like a marriage that has overcome, where people have, have worked hard with each other, they've overcome challenges, a lot of times those end up being some of the most meaningful relationships. Uh, and not even just marriages, but any relationship with other people. What's also interesting is a lot of times in our relationship with God, overcoming challenges and overcoming obstacles uh, can be that which can make it the most satisfying and, and rewarding. You cannot 
fully understand, I don't think, or it's difficult to fully understand the greatness of what God is doing and the value of what God is doing in our world and the benefit of what God is doing in our world if there are never any challenges along the way. I think one of the things that can connect us to God most deeply and sincerely are the obstacles that we have to overcome. The book of Acts, which we've been studying through, is a chronicle of a bunch of obstacles that the church had to overcome. And we're about to get into a new section of Acts where that doesn't change. You will see the value and the meaning and the beauty and the significance of the kingdom of God by watching how the church overcomes and strives through these obstacles. God has a plan for this world, and it seems that this plan is far beyond anything we would have conceived on our own and anything that we even think is possible. Uh, this plan is something that so often we undervalue and undersell because it's difficult to grasp what God fully wants to do. And I think as you continue to read the book of Acts, what you end up finding is there are a lot of people who wanted to control or limit what God was doing in this world. And Paul has a very difficult time opening up uh, people's minds to the fact that something bigger is happening here. And he suffers for that. And he has obstacles for that. And he has challenges for that. But those obstacles, rather than deterring him and causing him to, to abandon the faith or walk away, rather those obstacles, I think, draw him even closer to the God that he's serving. And so uh, last week, we studied Acts chapter 10. We looked at the gospel being proclaimed to Cornelius. We looked at an uncircumcised uh, Roman centurion Gentile who, became, uh, who received the Holy Spirit and became a Christian. It's like that is not something that was on anybody's radar. Peter had to have a miraculous vision in order to get him to even go there. And Cornelius had to have a, a divine messenger to tell him to get Peter. It's like God had to construct this thing so that people knew Wow, something's happening here. And if God didn't do that, I don't think people would have gone that route. I think, I think uh, Peter and his contemporaries would have been content to let the gospel rest with them. Uh, and uh, Gentiles wouldn't have known that there was an option to them. But what you see there is that God broke through a locked door. And he's showing, he, he gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. And he's showing that there are incredible things on the horizon. Now, along the way through this study, something really important has happened that I've only even barely mentioned. We haven't even had a full lesson on it. Uh, there was a guy who was converted, and he's kind of important. Uh, it happened back in chapter 9, and he is someone who was causing a lot of those obstacles. He was causing a tremendous amount of problems for the church, and his name is Saul, or we also know him as Paul. And uh, he was very devout in his zeal against Christianity. And he was doing everything within his might to imprison or kill, or in any way possible, put an end to this Jesus movement that he was completely, wholly, and entirely opposed to until he met Jesus. He has an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus that changes his whole entire life. One of the things that's interesting about it is that during that encounter with Jesus, he's actually struck blind. He sees this bright light that is so bright and blinding that he becomes blind and he cannot see like scales are on his eyes and it takes him a couple of days of prayer and fasting and then hearing the gospel and then being baptized and having the scales fall off of his eyes before he can see and that's I think in some ways symbolic of a new way of life, a new way of seeing the world that is going to be before Paul. He's going to see things differently now and one thing he's going to see differently and he's going to dedicate his life to is expanding what God's vision for the world is beyond what so many people wanted it to be. 
He's going to go farther than what people think is possible. Uh, He's going to take what Peter did by preaching the gospel to Cornelius and make that the purpose and mission of his life. He's going to use scripture to say, this is what my life is about, being a light unto the Gentiles. He's going to quote from Isaiah 49. He's going to say, that's what I'm dedicating myself to. I'm going to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. By the way, the word nations and the word Gentiles, same word. So what he says is, that's what he's going to dedicate himself to. He believes that the promise made to Abraham, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, has come about, and he's going to bring that blessing to them. And so he's going to take this vision of God, and he's going to go from city to city to city to try to expand the kingdom, but he will be met with obstacles and with difficulty and with persecution and with tribulation, the likes of which I've never even come close to experiencing before. He's going to have obstacles. But again, obstacles don't always mean that, uh, that you have to quit. In fact, that's not what they should mean. Obstacles are often that which can make it more valuable, more meaningful, and draw you in even closer. I think Paul, with each new encounter, grows more committed in his walk with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, look through Acts chapter 13 and 14. Acts chapter 13 and 14 is a good, is a good section of Acts. Uh, it has a good introduction and end that kind of serve as bookmarks to the section. Um, in fact, at the end of Acts 14, look with me at Acts chapter 14 and verse 26. This is often called Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, in this first missionary journey, uh, he visits a couple of cities. And there's actually kind of a, a recurring pattern that pops up in each of these cities that we'll see as we look through it. But look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 26. He says, From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. What that's saying is they got back home. Uh, Acts 13 begins in Antioch, and they send Paul out on this work that he's going to go do. And in Acts 14, 26, he gets back home and tells them about the work. In fact, if you look at verse 27, It says, when they had arrived, they gathered the church together and they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So he gets back home after uh, being on this this long missionary journey, visiting all these different cities, suffering along the way. He gets back and he begins to tell them all the things that happened. I wonder what he said there. I have a guess about what he said there. I bet Acts chapter 13 and 14, which tells us that story, is about the same report that Paul gives to them. Uh, I I bet that this report that we're going to read is almost like Paul retelling his story. Uh, The church heard this message of Paul. They retold these stories from Paul. Luke wrote down these stories from Paul. And we're about to get his report. We're about to get his his, uh, understanding of what took place uh, while he was out on uh, this first missionary journey. And so uh, if you want to, look back at Acts chapter 13. And then we'll start in verse 2. It mentions in verse 1 these prophets and these teachers who were there at the church at Antioch. And they were people who ministered to the church. They spent time praying over the church. They cared and served the church there. If you look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord, these prophets, and fasting. So notice how it begins with um, serving the Lord or ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
So we're about to find out the work that they're going to do, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is directing this mission. Uh, verse 3, then they went and fasted and prayed. Uh, or sorry, then when they had fasted and prayed. Notice fasting and prayer begins this. I, I, want, I want that to stick in your minds because it's going to be important here in a little bit. Fasting and prayer is the introduction to this missionary journey. When they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So remember who's conducting this whole thing. The Holy Spirit tells the prophets, hey, send these guys out. There's fasting. There's prayer. They then fast and pray with them. They lay hands on them. And then the Holy Spirit sends them out. We begin finding out what cities they go to. And you can, you can it's actually kind of fun to do. Uh, you can get a map. It's probably one in the back of your Bible. You can put your finger there in Antioch uh, where Paul begins. And some of them even have the little lines that, you know, take you along the way. Uh, but you can just kind of follow his route and it will mention city by city. And you can, every city that's mentioned, it'll usually show you exactly where it is on the map. And it's kind of a fun little exercise to, to travel with Paul. Um, you can even get on, uh, on Google Earth uh, or, or Google Maps and you can uh, type in the names of some of these cities. You can see what they look like today. Uh, some of them will have ruins that you can look at and it will show you kind of what the city looked like. Uh, you, can, you can get on the internet, you can walk the streets of some of these cities that Paul went through. Anyway, that's if you're a nerd and you like to do stuff like that on your own time. Uh, but you can go through and it's, it's a fun thing to study. Uh, but then you get to verse, uh, verse 6. We're going to, be, going to begin a pattern here that we'll see uh, repeated throughout the next uh, two chapters. It says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. Okay, so what's going to happen is Paul gets to an island and they run into a magician there. The pattern that we're going to see is usually something like this. Paul arrives at a new city. In that city, he's going to preach the gospel at some point while he's there. There's always going to be some sort of opposition that arises, or an obstacle, or a challenge to overcome, some sort of roadblock. But then they will overcome that roadblock in very different ways, depending on which city they're in, by the way. And then people will believe, and they'll move on to the next city. Uh, but you'll see that happen in virtually every one of these cities. There's going to be uh, a new city. The gospel is going to be preached. There's going to be different responses to it. Some of those responses are roadblocks and challenges and obstacles, but some of those responses are faith and belief. And then they move on and they, they do it again. So right here, we've been introduced to the new city, and we've been introduced to uh, the roadblock, the challenge, the obstacle, and it's a magician. Uh, and this guy is completely, wholly, and entirely opposed to the message of uh, that Paul is preaching. In fact, if you look at verse 8, it says, uh, but Elimus the magician, for his name is, uh, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Paul is giving the word of God to the proconsul, uh, to, to the leader in the area, and the magician is doing everything he can to stop it. And then something really remarkable happens. Remember how I told you about the conversion of Paul and how he saw that bright light and he went blind and uh, he was blind for a short period of time, then he was able to see again? Well, God is going to strike this magician blind. And he's going to go blind a lot like Paul did. Paul, we know the rest of the story, how he came to have new sight. We're not told the rest of the story of this magician, uh, but we do know that uh, he's going to become blind. And uh, then after that happens, the proconsul. If you look down at uh, verse 12, 
It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, and being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so you have an obstacle. This magician is opposing everything that Paul is saying. But then you have the other person who ends up believing. Uh, Paul is able to preach, overcome the obstacle. Someone believes. I, we don't know how long this blindness lasted. Uh, it says it's for a time. But uh, eventually it will go away. And I'm curious what he's thinking during this time. Uh, I'm curious what, uh, you know, I wonder if he ever has a conversation with the proconsul afterwards. So we, we, we don't know. But, uh, but it's an interesting story. It's a very rare story because you don't see things like that happen very often at all. Uh, where, uh, where you see someone actually suffer something physical uh, in their opposition to the gospel. But it happens right there and uh, he is blinded. That did happen to Paul, uh, and Paul came forth seeing more clearly than he ever had in his life. I'd like to hope and pray that happens for this magician as well. But then uh, Paul continues to journey on. When you get to verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions, uh, they put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that little detail a little bit more next week. But right now, what we're going to see is uh, they continue their journey. In verse 14, they get to a place called Pisidian Antioch. So Paul left from Antioch, and he's going to arrive at a different Antioch, a Pisidian Antioch. Um, and what's going to happen here is Paul's going to go to the synagogue. And you know what? Paul's kind of a well-known Jewish Pharisee and teacher. Uh, he's someone who people respect his, his teaching abilities. And it seems that perhaps he has not yet lost that respect yet in all of these circles. That will happen. He'll lose pretty much everything. But now when he goes and he's a, a visiting, you know, traveling uh, teacher, he enters into a synagogue. They say, hey, why don't you get up and teach for us? So the way synagogue uh, worship usually took place was there would be certain readings from the law and the prophets, and then there would be like an exposition or, uh, where someone would, would teach on what that means and how to live it out, and there would be prayers and there would be singing and different things that would take place. Well, someone gets up and they read from the law and from the prophets, and then uh, when you get to verse 15, after the reading of the law of the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul says, don't mind if I do. Uh, and Paul stands up and he begins to teach. And he probably takes this teaching in a direction that nobody there is expecting. Uh, he does do a brief summary of uh, the, some of the, the story of the Old Testament to the point of David. And then he leaps forward to the son of David, uh, who is Jesus. And he begins to preach about Jesus. And he preaches about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that is offered through Jesus and how this is consistent with the message of the prophets. And you know what happens? He preaches the gospel. Look at verse 43. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. What happens is he gets to a city, he preaches the gospel, and there's going to be different reactions to it. But some people are following Paul, and they're very interested in what he's saying. They were captivated by the message that he was presenting from the law and the prophets. But then, here's what happens. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now the challenge arises. Now the conflict. Now the obstacle to overcome. And uh, what eventually ends up happening is Paul makes a switch in his 
uh, missionary strategy because of this. Uh, what you'll see is virtually every obstacle is going to hit Paul a little bit differently. This time, he recognizes that there is jealousy among one group that is hindering the gospel, so he's going to switch to another group. When you get to verse 46, he says, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And he says that this is actually what God has always had in mind. He quotes from Isaiah 49 about becoming a light to the nations or a light to the Gentiles. And then verse 49, or sorry, verse 48 says, And the Gentiles heard this and began rejoicing and glorifying uh, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So now you have... Uh, the Gentiles who are starting to believe, Paul has changed his missionary strategy, uh, overcoming one of the new obstacles that arises. But what happens here is it incenses and angers uh, the, 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 the previous challenge, and the challenge doesn't go away. And so verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading group in the city and instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So now the challenge becomes so hostile and the persecution arises so much from a different group. It's been from a magician. It's been from uh, Jews. It's been from leading women in the city and, uh, and uh, other, de uh, other devout people. Uh, what you see is Paul now has to leave and move on. But there are now people who have become Christians in Pisidian Antioch. When you get to uh, chapter 14, you'll see the pattern start again in a new city says, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. All right, so he goes to a new city, he begins teaching, and people are starting to believe. All right, goes to a place, gospel is proclaimed, people start to believe. What's missing so far in this city? The obstacle. Uh, that arrives in verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved, they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So then Paul begins doing like signs and wonders and keeps teaching. And some people come to follow and believe, but some people become even more fixated in their opposition. They look uh, more fixed in their opposition. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by, notice this, both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to some other cities. All right, so Paul now goes, he's able to do signs and wonders here. He's able to teach. Greeks come to believe, Jews come to believe, but then a division arises and uh, both Jews and Greeks together become this obstacle. So we've seen a magician, we've seen uh, Jews, we've seen uh, leading men and women of a city. We now see Jews and Gentiles together. What you're seeing is these challenges are coming from these groups and the groups are growing and kind of morphing and they keep presenting new challenges. And sometimes Paul has been able to miraculously be saved from the opposition. Uh, sometimes Paul has uh, had to change who he's evangelizing because of the opposition. Sometimes Paul has had to flee the city because of the opposition. And he ends up leaving this city and going to a place called Lystra. When he gets to Lystra, there's a man there. And this man, uh, we find out, uh, verse 8 of chapter 14, he had been sitting and he had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. 
And Paul speaks a word to him, and the man is able to get up and to rejoice. And to, uh, he's like immediately, he's immediately saved from his uh, affliction, and the crowds gather together. And now we're going to see another kind of obstacle appear. Um, this is religious confusion that's going to swirl around Gentile cities that Paul probably didn't have to deal much with uh, when he was working in synagogues. Uh, when he does this, the people come to see the healing that took place, and notice what they say. Verse 11, they say in the uh, Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And then when the apostles uh, Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd crying out, Man, why are you doing these things? Uh, that's not something that would happen much in Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're you know, not in Kansas anymore. Uh, they are in a new area. They do some of the work of the Lord. And rather than people glorifying God, people think that Zeus and Barnabas are there. And they want to worship Paul and offer sacrifice to him. And so Paul's like, whoa, okay, we have to fix this right now. That's not the direction I wanted this to go at all. Um, and so Paul has to then begin correcting this new problem that arises. He's going to do it with teaching and trying to, to help clarify that it's not about him and it's he's not a god and he's not Zeus or, or Hermes you know that's that's not uh, what he and Barnabas are doing um, but as as Paul is trying to stop them from offering these sacrifices notice verse 19 so the crowds that had become become so enraged at them in the previous cities and even tried to stone them in the last city they show up again in verse 19 but the Jews came from Antioch, where we were in chapter 13, and Iconium, where we were in chapter 14. Uh, and having won over the crowds, remember, they left uh, Iconium because the people were wanting to stone them. Now they get to Lystra, and it says, and they did stone Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So Paul ends up being stoned. They think he's dead. They drag his body out of the city and leave him there. Uh, Verse 20, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. <laughs> so he gets up and just goes back in the city, which I, I have to think there's some divine healing that God is, is giving to Paul there. But all of this is a way of saying uh, everything that Paul does is met with op opposition, is met with conflict, and yet it doesn't stop him from what he's doing. And the same you could say with, with Barnabas. They are not stopped by all the powers of Satan and of darkness and the rulers and the cities and the, the people who are antagonizing them and trying to fight against them. In fact, they just keep on keeping on. In fact, the concluding paragraph is fascinating of what Paul and Barnabas do to end this first missionary journey. Look at verse 21. It says, After they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples... So they keep preaching, people keep believing. It says they returned, uh, they had gone on to Derby, by the way. They returned to Lystra. That's the city where Paul was just stoned. They return right back there, and they return uh, to Iconium. Paul just had to flee there because they were going to try to stone him, and they returned, in verse 21, to Antioch. And that's another place that Paul had to flee for his life because of persecution. And he goes right back where he was. And what does he do, verse 22? 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, and this is a really good summary of the two chapters that we just briefly went through, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Like if you want happiness, challenges are going to be a part of that. But if you want something that's a whole lot deeper than happiness, if you want the kingdom of God, well, tribulations are going to be there as well. In fact, pretty much every good thing you're going to want in this life, every good thing that you're going to be offered, there's going to be suffering along the way. The resurrection happens after the crucifixion. That's a pattern of this life. And what I want to encourage us to do is a couple of things. One, never give up when the conflict seems too high. For the mission of God and for the purpose of the church and for the fact that we are a people who are sent, we continue on the mission knowing that resurrection follows crucifixion, that rejoicing follows suffering, and that the darkness around us is not the end of the story, but there is light on the other side. God is offering something better. Paul continued on. He did not let it stop him, and I think that becomes an example for us as well. Uh, another thing that he goes on to do in verse 23 says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, uh, Notice Paul isn't expecting this to be just a brief thing and then the church kind of withers and goes away. He actually believes God is creating new communities here and they're going to stay for a while. You don't have elders in a place if you don't expect it to be there for more than a week. Uh, Paul truly believes that God is going to continue working in each of these places and he sets up elders there to ensure that they last, that they have good leadership and, and guidance as they continue on into the future. And then it says, verse 23, having appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the people who had believed, Paul commends them to the Lord, but notice there's also prayer and fasting. This whole thing started with the church in Antioch praying and fasting about this trip, and it ends with Paul going to each of these churches and praying and fasting with them. Prayer and fasting, I believe, are just about essential to the work that the church is going to do. Um, God is doing something bigger than we ever thought possible, and I think he still is. I think God is still making changes in this world, opening new doors in this world, and spreading the gospel in this world, but it will come with tribulation. We are called to be a people who overcome. We're called to be a people who rise up, and through the help of God, we're able to accomplish what God has set out for us to do. That will not always come easily. In fact, it certainly won't come easily. There will be tribulation and challenges and obstacles along the way. But with God, with prayer and fasting, with faithfulness, and with Jesus Christ as our example, we can overcome and we can do, I believe, more than ever thought possible before. And so then they eventually make their way back, and that's when Paul begins to give them the report of the things that took place. People were saved because of this missionary journey. There are people whose eternities are changed drastically and forever because of what Paul has done on this trip and because of what God had done through him. And we get to be a part of that mission here. We get to be a part of the same work that Paul is doing. And I want to encourage each and every one of us. There's going to be difficulties along the way, but never underestimate what God can do. Don't give up when it gets tough. And remember that prayer and fasting are really important if they're on your side. Uh, God 
is central to the success of anything that the church does. And you can see that through this passage right here. You can see that, I believe, in any successful work that goes on in the church. If there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian this morning, if there's anyone here who would like uh, the prayers of the church, you can come and you can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come sit on the front row. But if you have a need, we pray that you let it be known while we stand and as we sing.